Well, hello everyone and welcome back to the Intentional Leader Podcast. I hope you're doing well. I'm Cal and I am on a mission to try to learn to live and lead more intentionally because we know that when the leader gets better, lives get better. And I have a treat for you today. I have Dr. Amy Edmondson on the podcast. She's a professor of leadership and management at the Harvard Business School, and she pioneered the concept of psychological safety. And she's out with a new book. It's called The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. It was already named the best business book of 2023 by Financial Times, and it is a masterclass on how to fail well, which is something we all do. I really think you're gonna enjoy today's conversation. If you do, would you mind leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Let us know what you think. That really helps us reach more leaders and grow this community. Without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Edmondson. All right, well, it is a true honor to have Dr. Edmondson on the Intentional Leader Podcast today. Good morning and welcome. Thanks so much for having me and please call me Amy. Well, well, thanks, Amy. And I am a, a huge fan of your work, and it's amazing to speak with someone who pioneered the idea of psychological safety, someone like me who likes to nerd out on leadership and think about how teams <laughs> work well and why certain teams work better than others. It, it's just incredible to speak with you. And I, as I was saying before I hit record, I have pages of notes. I'm sure we will only get to a fraction of those, which is, which is totally fine. Um, I wanted to start though with the idea of psychological safety because it seems that your most recent work builds on that a little bit. And some people may not may, may have heard that term but may not be familiar with the concept. And I was curious if you could kind of take us to imagine you have a lot of leaders listening. Imagine they walk into an organization or a team that has psychological safety. I wonder if you could just describe for us what that would look like and what that would feel like. What would we see if we walked into a team that had that idea of, of psychological safety? I think you'd see a lot of energized discussion. I think you'd see conflict. I think you'd see um, I think you'd see some laughter. I think you'd see people willing to ask each other for help. I think you'd see people challenging each other's ideas and saying, hold on, you know, walk me through that. I don't see how that would work. So it would be lively. It would be learning oriented. I think that's the bottom line. It's, it's, it, you would see people trying to work out the best way to proceed and doing it, you know, honestly and energetically. Now, if this is, if these are people doing a known task as, as opposed to sort of trying to come up with an idea or, or um, an initiative, then you'd see them, you know, engaged in the work and asking for help when they need it, speaking up when they see something that doesn't feel quite right. So it really describes a learning environment. I mean, one of my early passions, the reason, one of the things that drove me to go to graduate school and, and pursue research was sort of the half-formed idea about the learning organization and this mm. concept that we need to have learning organizations in a world that keeps changing. And yet, um, that seems to be quite challenging on a number of levels. And one of the things that I sort of zeroed in, in, zeroed in on relatively early was that if the interpersonal climate isn't conducive to learning, then the teams can't learn. And if the teams can't learn, the organizations can't learn. Yeah, we've, we've probably all been on, on teams where 
you, there's that fear of speaking up. I know I've been on teams where I, I've watched how my colleagues are treated when they say exactly. something that's divergent. And it's interesting how it just inside of our brains, without even being conscious of it, we say, oh, I don't want to be like that person. So maybe next time when I have an idea that I think, hmm, I'm not sure if this is going to be well received, I'll just stay silent. Just hold back, right? Yeah. Think, and so it. Think how easy it is to hold back, right? It's just doesn't cost anything. And my experience, Amy, uh, mostly comes, so I'm come from a military background as an infantry officer. And it's interesting to think about psychological safety in that context where you're, you're literally training for war. You're training. Uh, I had an opportunity to lead a platoon in Iraq. And so the idea of people not being willing to speak up is, is certainly not going to be helpful in that context. It's dangerous, right? It, Dan it literally be, dangerous. It would be life, life threatening. Yeah, no, I and love yet, how you put that, that you've been in situations, I have two, where either consciously or subconsciously, you're taking in the data on how other people are being treated when they take a risk. And you process it and decide, nope, I, want, I, do, I either do or don't want to be in their seat. Absolutely. And in contrast to that, what I've noticed on some of the best teams is that the leader, the person who's most senior will actually encourage conflict. Um, I talked to Pat Lincioni about this, just having the leader say, you know what, I actually want to hear from all of you. I want to hear, I want us to engage in healthy conflict around ideas because I want to hear all of your ideas. Yeah. Or what are we missing? Right? What are we missing? You Love know, that question. Here's how I see it, but yeah, help me out here. What, what am I missing? What are we missing? What other ideas do you have? Where could this go wrong? You know, the the, the wonderful Gary Klein pre-mortem, right? It's We're pretty enthusiastic about this plan, but hey, just for fun, let's imagine it went terribly wrong. What would have explained it? Hmm. Yeah, we have a concept in the military. It's called red teaming. And uh, we'll actually have, a, you know, a team of smart people that we identify and we say, pick this idea apart. Just take, take this plan, take this mission plan, be the adversary for just a minute and pick this plan apart and tell yeah. us what, what are we missing? What, what could go wrong? So we've talked about it a little bit, but what would you, you have a number of leaders listening. What would be your practical advice for them? And we've talked about probably some of those ideas, but what would be your practical advice for them if they wanted to create an environment that had psychological safety? Really three things. And one is what you and I have already been doing here, which is call attention to uncertainty, right? Call attention to our vulnerability. If, if we get this wrong, it matters, whether we're taking care of patients or we're in the battlefield, right? That, that just be explicit. I mean, I think many leaders, understandably, imagine that everyone is on the same page about the nature of the work and the nature of the task. Don't assume that. Even if it's true intellectually, you've got to make it true kind of viscerally and emotionally where it's sort of like, oh, yeah, this is we've never done anything quite like this before. Or patients lives are in our hands or this is a really exciting initiative for the organization. Uh, you know, all ideas welcome. Right? So you're calling attention to the nature of the work that requires our brains fully in the game. And number two you're explicitly inviting people's 
thinking, concerns, questions. You know, you're saying you're you're doing what you're doing in this podcast. You're asking me questions. I think leaders need to get very much in the habit of inquiry. Like as we were modeling before, what are we missing? Or mm. um, you know, what ideas do you have? What are customers saying? What it, just showing really explicitly modeling that you are interested in what other people are bringing uh, to the table. And then third, and possibly most important, although it's all important, is how do you respond, right? How do you respond? And, and, and you were calling attention to that earlier, Cal, but how do you respond when someone has a dissenting view? How do you respond when someone brings you bad news or when someone makes a mistake? And the short answer is constructively. And I, th I think the essence of a constructive response is, um, you know, calm, appreciative. Thanks for that clear line of sight and forward looking. Right? That it's it's all about not who did this, how did this go wrong, but what next? How can we help? What ideas do you have? Yeah, I think it's so. I think it requires a level of self control from the leader, especially when there's yes. bad news brought to them, because it, there's that instinct of like, oh my goodness. Uh, that's not good. Um, right, your face is going to give it away. Yeah, right, yeah, you may, your body language may, even yeah. if you're internally trying right. to control yourself. And when that happens, that's okay. Just apologize, right? Sort of like, yeah. okay, I'm sorry. That that This is disappointing, and I so appreciate you bringing it to my attention. Mm. Yeah. So, Amy, I was, uh, so after serving uh, as an infantry officer, I went to law school and then now I'm an attorney in the army and I was a prosecutor for a little while. And I remember was prosecuting a felony case and uh, I remember making a mistake. Actually, I don't even remember what the details of the mistake were, but it felt like it was the, yeah. this case was over. I felt like I had made a grave error that literally this case was going to be done. And I remember going into the office of my senior prosecutor and bringing the problem to him. And he was so calm and he just quickly was like, oh, no big deal. We'll fix this. And it was just, it was one of those moments that I'll never forget because it, one, it made me feel like, okay, I'm going to be okay. But then it also made me feel so much more comfortable bringing problems right. to him right. in the future because of his just calm demeanor. And I just, it, it marked me as a leader, like, wow, I want to be that type of leader moving forward and make my people feel safe when they, when they feel like they've just ended something critical. That may be the most important reason why good leadership matters is that mm. you are a role model and consciously and unconsciously people are, 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 are learning from your example. And sometimes even if it feels, even if the reaction feels really bad um, and no one would want, you know, no one would want to put someone in that position, you still unconsciously adopt those those mannerisms and those habits, right? So it's it's all the more important, like the impact of that leader on you, and now you're yeah. impacting others, including through this podcast. Right? So it's it has a huge ripple effect. Mm. I want to ask you another. So one of the things you you put even in your most recent book, um, you're talking about how teams with psychological safety they have better performance, and you also said that they have lower burnout. I'm curious about that. What, what is the connection between psychological safety and people on teams not burning out? Because I'm always looking for, I remember leading a team uh, of prosecutors later on, and I was so concerned because they were dealing with tough subject matter, uh, hard 
cases. I mean, the, there's just everything is on the line when you're, when you're trying to work in these, these environments. And I was really concerned, like, how can I, as a leader, help them not burn out? And uh, so that, that struck me. What, yeah. what is the connection between I, psychological safety absolutely. and people not yeah. burning out? Here, you know, we have the data on it, and it's from healthcare delivery settings, including during COVID when burnout was very much a, a, mm. a real risk. Um, my best explanation of it is that 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 professionals, that you know, folks in your line of work, we can we can endure a lot if we're in it together, right? If if we have a um, uh, that 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 psychological experience that we're all in it together, we have each other's back. We're working, we're working hard, yes, but we also see that what we're doing matters. That's actually a positive experience. Right? So it's the the relationship between burnout. I mean, between sort of effort and challenge and burnout is not simple and straightforward. It's it's very much mediated by how we think about or moderated how we think about the situation, right? If I think the situation is endless and grueling and full of sort of um, unfeeling colleagues or leaders, um, then it's it's exhausting, it's depressing, it's burning me out. If I think of this as uh, I'm, 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 I'm working with people I, I respect, respect me, I'm all in, we're making a difference, then sign me up. Yeah, and it, even as you were just talking there, it made me think of, you know, some, sometimes I tend to go when I'm thinking about how do I help people avoid burnout? It's like, well, just don't make them do so much work or don't make the, try to make the work easier. And, and then maybe there's some truth to that, but I, I guess as you were talking, it made me think, well, you can still do very hard work and work hard. And yet still, if you're part of a team where right. you feel safe and you feel that kind of cohesion, and I've been a, I've been part of teams like that. It it's energizing in a way, which is, is kind of is. counterintuitive. I think we all are longing to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, something that matters, and uh, it's it's um, with other people, right? That's that's part of the bigger. You know, the purpose is bigger than ourselves, but also the being part of a team. It's it's less lonely. It's um, and that's where some of the energizing aspects come come in, and then. Layer onto that the uh, experience of second guessing and reading the room, and you know, is it okay if I say something now? Yeah. That stuff is actually mentally exhausting. It is. So if yes. you can take that away, and yeah. yeah, you got something to say, you're going to say it. Mm -hmm. Then less burnout. Hundred percent. Yeah, that that resonates with me in my experience, and so it. So I really want I want to shift a little bit to your to your new work, and uh, I just so appreciate it, even just from a human level, because as you talk about in the book, we are all fallible human beings. No matter how I mean, think about you and your husband, and you you have achieved so much, and yet I love how you're spending time helping all of us deal with failure, which is just just part of the human condition, and. Uh, yeah. Well, thank I, you. You're kind. I'm curious how how yeah. did how did you transition? And obviously, I see the obvious connection between psychological safety and your most recent work, which I'll hold up for those watching on YouTube. <laughs> the right kind of wrong: the science of failing well. Incredible book, as uh, as Angela Duckworth says at the top. It's a masterclass on navigating failure, which of course we all need. Uh, so thank you for writing this book. Thank you for I know the time investment and the hard work that it took <sighs> to put that together. 
what's the con- how did you how did yeah. you transition to writing this book when you when you had spent well, so much time on psychological safety? You know, I, I suppose one one way to answer that is that I failure came first. Right? That, that mm-hmm. in fact, when I started my very first research project as a PhD student was on medical errors and adverse drug events, you know, in, in hospitals. So those are failures. Um, so, some of them are, are, you know, some of them are utterly preventable. A few of them you couldn't have possibly seen coming, like an unknown allergy to a medication. But they're, they're failures. They're not what we hope. When a patient is in hospital, we, we hope that they're getting uh, helped, not harmed. And, 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 and because of my early interest in how do we help organizations learn, the idea of learning from mistakes and learning from failures was, was was in there from the beginning. I stumbled into psychological safety during that project by accident. Right, I stumbled mm-hmm. into it when I sort of discovered very real differences in reporting climate across mm-hmm. the teams. Right, that some really were uh, just fine. I'm not saying it was fun, but just fine speaking up about mistakes and errors and reporting and and others were just can't do that you get you get put on trial you get made to feel like a two-year-old so i went whoa that's interesting right if this if this interpersonal climate or reporting climate really differs across teams in the same organization that has enormous implications for learning so answer one is failure was first failure and mistakes are important parts of learning in life and in organizations but the the um, I think the second part of the answer is I, I wanted to, to reach um, my you know my, the the audience that I care so much about the people like you that are interested in leadership and coaching and um, really ha- helping organizations work as they should on a kind of a on, on this broader topic. You could think of psychological safety as um, a very specific aspect of learning and i and i think i think it's a really important aspect but it's very specific and it's a it describes the climate in which learning happens whereas this book focuses more on the substance of the work and mm. you know some work for instance work in innovation requires us to experiment in thoughtful mm-hmm. ways requires us to tolerate the fact that there will be failures along the way and i call those failures intelligent failures but other work like in, in, in hospitals or on an assembly line or in aviation, um, calls for us to do our very best at applying the knowledge we already have. And, and that's about failure prevention when we, when we can um, and anticipation and mitigation of, of complex failures when, when we have failed to prevent them. And, and so I thought by really looking at the variable nature of the different kinds of work we do, the role of failure in these different contexts, and the leadership responsibilities for failing well, as as mm. the subtitle includes, was 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 an important and more concrete, if you will, a more concrete mm-hmm. um, way to address this broader issue of of leadership in an uncertain world. Yeah, I think people will really enjoy this book because of the nuance. And so, and you talk about it in the book a little bit. There's the, on the one hand, there's the failure avoidance idea of just never try, try, try to live your life to never have to fail. And on the other, you see it a lot in the tech space. It's fail fast and really encouraging lots and lots of failure. And then the, this book, I think, does such a great job because failure in general, that word is maybe not as precise 
as we'd like it to be. It can mean a lot of different things and in different contexts. But you do a great job of giving us some nuance and some helpful terminology around failure. One, just defining what is failure, what is it not? And then also giving us those three types of failures and then helping us understand the nuance of, of how to approach each. Uh, and an intelligent failure is the is the right kind of failure. In exactly, that particular the right kind con- of wrong. <laughs> the right kind of wrong, that's right. The right kind of... Um, can we talk a little bit about our response to failure? Because that's that's where I, because I was refl- actually one of the yeah. exercises I did. I don't know if it was healthy or not. You could tell me in preparing for this is I literally just was like, you know what? I'm just going to list out a lot of my failures because I, I just obviously they're in my head. Yeah, um, just, but they're, they're percolating back there. <laughs> yeah. and, and I went, you know, I have the big ones that you know I I probably could spend a lot of time reflecting on and assigning meaning to and Maybe I should, and I'd be interested to get your take on that. And then there's the recent ones like this week. In fact, I was working on a PowerPoint for my boss and I, you know, we were going over a bunch of updates uh, and she is a, a pretty high ranking military leader. And there was one picture that I was supposed to put on a slide. It wasn't a big deal, but I didn't do it. I forgot to do it. And then I remember she's up there giving her presentation. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, she's going to come to that slide and the picture's not going to be in there. It's going to be this big deal. It ended up, wasn't a big deal. But of course, I was so fixated on that that one thing that I had forgotten to do. And I apologized afterwards. And she was like, oh no, no big deal. Um, so, and other failures that I could name this uh, this week. But I guess <laughs> my, my head went to, it seems that our response when we experience failure on a micro level or on a higher significant level is a really key aspect to living in this space well. So I wonder if we could just talk a little bit. One, let's just start here. Why is it so hard for us to fail well? You talk about some of the negativity bias and the loss aversion and blame. And there's a lot of things that that actually just physiologically make it hard for us to respond well. Right. Right. And, and, so absolutely, I say we have a kind of emotional aversion to failure. That's that's um, you know, it's not surprising that we have that, right? I mean, it, it goes back to some of the things we talked about at the beginning, where you you want to be that person who got it right, not the person who got it wrong, right? That there's a <clears throat> there's both social pressure and personal pressure to like to to do well, and and that's understandable, um, and yet. It's not very rational. I mean, first of all, we're, we're always going to make mistakes, little ones like the one you just described. And um, many, if not most of them, are just not a big deal. It doesn't stop us sometimes from perseverating on them because we just want to think of ourselves as a person who doesn't, you know, make make mistakes. Like we want to think of ourselves as sort of perfect, which is crazy because we're not. And (laughs) the whole other, you know, uh, issue of perfectionism, Mm. um, which is really so unhealthy and, uh, you know, does not help us achieve our goals, even though it can, it can seem like uh, it might. Um, So the, 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 the antidote really is to think more rationally Mm. about failures, you know, to, to sort of almost to keep putting them in perspective. So the, the one you described with the PowerPoint, it's like, oh, you know, I wish I'd put it on, but the fact that I didn't, it's, 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 I'm disappointed in myself. Maybe it made her, her talk one tiny iota less powerful, but Mm. really it's, it's okay. And you sort of, um, you might think, well, maybe I'll, 
create a checklist for myself next time I make a, yeah. a, a deck or something, something like that. Like you, so you want to think constructively about it of like, huh, how would that have been avoidable? And then what if any new practice might I just incorporate into my work so that I avoid it ne- next time? Um, and, and, and then some really are kind of out of the blue and you have to say, okay, that's, that's fine too, right? It, it, um, we can't, we're not in charge of the universe and we have to not make the mistake of thinking uh, that, that we are. Um, but, but I think a lot of the um, sort of discipline of failing well is about thinking more clearly, more scientifically about failure, about being okay with the fact that we're fallible human beings, we just are, and also being more willing to experiment thoughtfully. Right? more willing to uh, to take to take um, smart risks where we are trying something new that we haven't tried before, knowing full well that it might not work. It might work, but it might not work. And that'll be okay too, because we will have gotten useful new knowledge uh, from it. I want to just take a moment. So just even just hearing you talk through how I might process that failure is really, I think, important because you're not, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're not suggesting that I just say, oh, okay, don't worry about it, like move on. No. You're I mean, suggesting almost like sit with it for a minute, re- review yeah. it, examine just case, it. Right, just in case, think, right? You, it's like a, an investment, you know? You, yeah. you paid for it, you might as well get your money's worth, right? It, it's just, I mean, it's small, treat it, don't overblow it, treat it as the small thing that it is. Uh, but, um, yeah, so it's it's like don't just move on because that mm-hmm. isn't helpful, but certainly don't wallow in it. That's even mm-hmm. more unhelpful. And it seems like that that's a that can be maybe a tough needle to thread at times because I I know I can and I'm sure others can begin to think of myself as a failure if I. And that's, yeah. there's probably a lot yeah. of layers to that, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, but how do, how do we avoid making it our identity uh, versus just really looking at it to constructively learn from it and moving yeah. on and maybe assigning some meaning to it that's, that serves us versus, yeah. Yeah. man, I'm a failure. I'm just sloppy. I missed, I missed that picture. That's just what I always do. You know, I'm, if I were just more organized, yeah. I would, you know, it's just like right. it becomes right. your identity right. almost. Well, you're overgeneralizing, right? So scientifically, you're going way beyond the data to overgeneralize, you know, from this event to a global assessment of me. And that's that's mm. um, actually um, quite related to what Angela Duckworth and um, Martin Seligman, her, her mentor, studied, that, that sort of, um, you know, healthy attributions about the things that, that that we do in our lives and the things that happen to us in our lives. And if we are prone to awfulizing, you know, what, what I, I make a mistake and then it's like, okay, I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's A, unhealthy, and B, quite inaccurate, right? You made mm. a mistake, yes, and threatens to, um, you know, ironically actually increase the chance that you'll do it again. Because if you start having self-talk, that is colored by, well, I'm a failure. I'm just someone who screws up all the time. Guess what? That will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's the, 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 I think that the practice, which I talk about in chapter five is, Mm -hmm. um, is essentially stop 
challenge, choose. Mm-hmm. And stop simply means pause, you know, take a breath um, and um, challenge your thinking. It could be right, right? Your thinking could be perfect, but just take a good look at it. You know, I'm okay. I didn't put that image in. I wish I had. Um, no, it didn't ruin the talk. And no, it isn't uh, evidence that I'm just an, an, an incompetent, you know, idiot. Um, it And um, choose the most healthy and rational interpretation of events. So it's, it's really the, that um, discipline of recognizing that events, that we assign meaning to events, they don't automatically have meaning. And we have the power mm. to reassign meaning. Now, we don't want to do that in a kind of sloppy way that just lets us off the hook at all times. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there are different personality risks. I mean, the, the personality of, you know, of sort of extreme narcissism mm. is just one that cannot simply cannot be responsible for anything, right? So if anything bad happens, it's someone else's fault. It's absolutely outside my control. Now, those people need, need our help. Um, They are not, they're not great team members. Uh, They're certainly not great leaders. Um, But, but um, that's kind of on the extremes. I mean, most of us are somewhere in between. We are prone to unhealthy thinking about our shortcomings but we're not hopeless. You know, we can, we can overcome it and, and do better. Can you talk, is in now what you're talking about right now, is, is this the same as what you talk about in the book with the fast processing versus slow processing high road versus low road, it's or is that in the different? same chapter? It's in the same chapter, but it, yes. And, and, and it's related. So, um, and that of course, building on the amazing work of, of Danny Kahneman, mm-hmm. um, that, that we are, you know, partly because it's efficient. I mean, if we had to process everything we do in in our our lives, we'd we'd be we'd get very bogged down indeed, right? We it's good that we can do a lot of things sort of quickly and with shortcuts and and have habitual routines that work for us. But um, the fast processing, um, which isn't the most thoughtful, cognitive, you know, frontal cortex processing sometimes needs to be interrupted like mm-hmm. hold on time out let's take a look um, and 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 when we interrupt it what we're trying to do is say let's think a little bit more carefully about this situation um, and you know if we're doing um, a failure after action review that's what we do I mean we might in, in, we might just simply say, what did we set out to do? What happened? What's, what's the difference and why? What will we do next time? Again, it doesn't have to take forever. And that's, that's I draw that from uh, your world. But but in your own life, it's, it's sort of the same thing. It's just the, slow it down enough to have higher quality processing about the events that matter, the upcoming events that matter. You know, instead of doing it in your sleep, don't do it in your sleep when it matters, right? <laughs> Yeah, and that the, the stop, challenge, choose, it's on page 194 of the book for those that, that have it. And it's such a such a helpful uh, construct and framework. And that I think that's what this book, one of the gifts of this book is there's so many just great frameworks to Thank think you. about failure 
um, you could tell that this was written by someone who has the kind of the brain to be able to take these well, concepts that seem a little mushy, put them in frameworks. I love frameworks. So do then I. my brain, then I can go to them and it's like, Oh, okay. Well now, you know, I have this experience. Start I have this failure. Let yeah. me stop. Let me challenge the idea. Let me choose how I'm going to proceed. And, and those are the ways that we make failure into a learning opportunity yeah. and, a, and a gift. Can you talk a little bit about playing to win versus playing yes. not to lose? Yes. It's, and we're right square in that domain. Um, I so, love chapter five. Chapter five. Yeah. I don't know if you have favorite chapters, but that was one of my favorites. I think it might be. It might be my favorite <laughs> chapter. And for me, it was also, these are the material in chapter five, which is really about self-awareness, mm -hmm. so important for leaders, um, is, is material that's been in my head for years and years, but I hadn't really written about it uh, before. So it was both hard and rewarding. And mm. I think I, I think it's my favorite chapter too. All the chapters um, start with a story. No, that one yeah. starts with a pretty good story. But um, wait, I'm so sorry. I forgot the question. Talk about Play, failure. Yeah, and yeah, I think this one, yeah. this one starts with the, the Ray Dalio story. Yeah, I yeah, was no, asking about playing yeah. Playing to win oh, playing, versus sorry, yeah, playing, playing not to, to lose. Yeah, playing yeah. to win. Yeah, how could I forget that? So, um, my my um, the premise is, and I got this years ago from from Larry Wilson, who was a great mentor and great conceptualizer. Um, premise is that most of the time, most of us are playing not to lose rather than playing to win. So, what does that mean? It means we're not we're not um, we're deliberately not forcing ourselves to stretch or to really go mm -hmm. for it, and it's. You know, in uh, Dan Pink's book about regrets, he finds that, you know, one yeah. of the dominant regrets when people look back on their lives is the the, the, the risk they didn't take. You know, the, the person they really wanted to ask out on a date but thought, mm. oh, they'll just say no, so I'm not going to do it. That's playing not to lose. Playing to win would be you ask them. Now, they might say no, but it's okay. You're no worse off. Um, maybe a little embarrassed or, or feel a little bad. But he, the, the idea is there's evidence for this that many of us it's it's safer to play not to lose right because if you if you sort of play not to lose you won't have to experience disappointment you won't lose and you also won't win big right you mm -hmm. won't um accomplish the things that you never thought possible or you won't um you know you won't you won't achieve the the ambitions and the goals you were really hoping to achieve so it's about staying safe you know setting setting the targets where you know for sure you'll make it rather than the stretch targets where you will be at risk of coming up short um but they're kind of energizing and, and exciting so it's really it's about i don't give a you know a specific playbook for how much stretch or what you should be doing, but but it's more about recognizing that potential tendency within you to kind of hold back, right? To hold mm -hmm. back and not do the things you're really longing to do. And it seems like with the and I see a connection there between that and maybe the the intelligent failures or the intelligent setbacks, because it almost seems like with the intelligent, there's some level of pre-deciding uh, that I'm that there's a risk here, that this is, that we are experimenting, that, that we can almost expect that we're not going to be perfect. Um, so I almost see a little bit of a connection there. I don't know if I'm off. Absol no, absolutely. No, because the whole idea of intelligent failure. So I, you know, the book, it's a book about failure, but it's really a book about success, right? Because mm. the, in a sense, failing well means use the best practices that are out there for 
preventing basic failures, for anticipating and mitigating the effects of complex failures. And so, you know, it's not like we want failures where, where, where they were, in fact, preventable. We want to we wanted be really excellent at, at preventing those kinds of failures. And we do want, and we certainly want a higher ratio of intelligent failures, which mm-hmm. are the, the disappointments of experiments in new territory. So if we're in new territory, trying something that we really hope will work, but alas, we were wrong, we have to be okay with that. Right? It's it's simply data. Right? It's not evidence of our shortcomings. It's not you know. It's just data that, that help us then take that next step. So, a kind of playing to win life would be one where we have more intelligent failures. It's like my great friend, uh, high school friend Laura, who in her forties took up ice hockey. Right? I mean, oh, there's I no way it. you start to play ice hockey. <laughs> I mean, she could skate, but figure wow. skate, which is very different, and. You know, to skate while getting that puck around, I mean, that's that's hard stuff. So mm. you can be sure that when, when Laura started to play ice hockey, she was experiencing a lot of failure, right? And mm. even, you know, falling on the ice, missing the pucks, all that stuff, right? But she was willing to do that because she was really excited that she thought this was going to be fun and was going to be like mm. a really cool a hobby uh, for her to engage in. Um 20 years later, it's like she says she's a fanatic about She wow. loves it. How fun. Yeah. But, you know, you would never do that if you were playing not to lose. Not because to if you're lose. playing not yeah. to lose, stick to things you're good at, you know. Mm-hmm. Book group, maybe. I love book group, right? But <laughs> it's not ice hockey. <laughs> Although for some, it would be the other way around, wouldn't it? Right, yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah you know yeah. you and you know... You know what, you and take yeah. more risks, right? In fact, in the last chapter, um, which is called Thriving as a Fallible Human Being... Love you know, that one, chapter too, One of yeah. the bits is take more risks, you know, fail yeah. more often. Yeah. It makes me think too uh, about joy because I almost think the people that I see that are the most joyful are playing to win. They're not... It's like there's this different level of energy and excitement. They're not always doing. They're certainly not doing easy things, but they're no, they're no, uh, and they're experiencing a level of you know setbacks. Uh, but there's just an energy around their lives of just yeah. like, hey, I'm I'm doing something new. I'm trying yeah. ice hockey at forty right. plus years old, and, right. and but, you know, it's like, wow, I kind of want to be around that type of person. Yeah, they they do. bring a level of energy. They are. Um, what's the word? They're energizing, but they're 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 attractive, right? Like you yeah. want to be, you want to yes. be around them. Um, and, and, um, they're not taking, you know, they they take themselves seriously, but they're not all tied up in knots about how, how they look or, you know, they're, they're not, they're not trying to be perfect or be seen as perfect at all times. Well, well, Amy, the last question I want to ask, I know you're a parent of two sons <laughs> and, uh, you know, certainly, all the parents out there, we, we think about how do we teach our kids to have a good relationship with, with failure, a good relationship with growth? How do we build that kind of mindset? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you could just speak in our last question uh, as we're yeah. wrapping up here to some of the parents out there. What, what are some thoughts sure. as you've done this work that you would offer to, to parents as they try to navigate the challenges of, uh, of bringing little ones into the world and helping yeah. them be successful adults? Yeah. So I think, first of all, I think you really want to 
uh, read Carol Dweck's work and encourage mm-hmm. a growth mindset, right? And, and a growth mindset, you know, you want to help them internalize a belief that their abilities, whether in math or in hockey, are fundamentally the output of the work they put into it, right? So you want, nothing is more painful to me than to hear a little kid say, I'm not good at math. It's like, come on, you know, yeah. no one is born good at math. Like you You're get good, good at math yeah. <laughs> by persevering and learning mm-hmm. and trying hard things, right? And that mm-hmm. that's what good at math means. It doesn't mean some gene that, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, so you're trying to encourage your your children to think about the, the pursuit of, excellence and progress as uh, like muscles is the way they are in sports where the, the the harder you work at it the 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 more you'll you'll improve as opposed to well i was born smarter i wasn't born smart which is a a fixed mindset and so you're one of the ways that dweck uh, recommends encouraging that growth mindset is don't talk so much about outcome talk about process you know don't say well that's a beautiful painting you know johnny say i love how you're using color Right, to mm-hmm. get them interested in in what they're doing and, and show an interest in what they're doing rather than just, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Like, that's a beautiful painting. That's an ugly painting. I mean, mm-hmm. no parent would ever say that's an ugly painting. Well, we, not too many parents would say that. We hope they wouldn't. <laughs> but but it's it gets us, it gets the kids addicted to the praise. And you really mm-hmm. want to not do that because then they internalize a play not to lose mindset. The other thing is, Please don't shield your kids from failure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you must keep them safe. You know, if a little kid is yeah. about to run out into the street after an errant ball, right. you yeah. stop that. Mm-hmm. But when they, you know, when they want to go out for ice hockey and you don't think they're going to be good at it, that's okay. Let let them give it mm-hmm. a try. You know, encourage them in trying. So when, when my older son was um, between 11th and 12th grade, he took a job. Um, he, and he came home and announced that he had already accepted this summer job uh, selling solar panels. And I just thought, you know, my in, instant reaction was, you know, oh, my God, the poor, like sales. You know, it's so hard and you get so much failure, so much yeah. rejection, so many yeah. doors closed in your face. Mm-hmm. And and naturally, as a loving parent, I wanted to shield him yeah. from that. But it was too late. Right. He'd already said yes. And you can't renege. So I kept my mouth shut. Um, and yes, he got lots of failures, but he also got some successes and he felt really good about it. And, and he wow. didn't, he, he actually, he knew Larry Wilson as well, who was a tremendous thinker and, and especially around sales. And he just, he didn't take it. He learned not to take it personally. And he okay. felt incredibly good about the roofs that now have panels on them because of him that previously didn't have panels. So that would have been that instinct to protect him from all that rejection. And I didn't do it. And uh, he is better off as a result. Well, thank you for that. And I, it just makes me think about you know, leadership. Obviously, parenting is leadership. And, you know, it, it highlights that our relationship with failure is going to be it's just so important for us to be healthy so that we can lead people in a healthy way, whether you're leading a team or leading yourself or leading little kids or adult yeah. kids. Uh, so Amy, it's, it's such, it's been such a joy to read your book and such a joy to to connect with you today. Thank you for playing to win and putting this work out into the world. Uh, last question is just what, where can people go to 
to connect with you, to learn more about your work, to follow your work moving forward? Um, probably the easiest thing to say is, well, there's LinkedIn, of course, Amy C. Edmondson. And um, there is, I do have a website. It's not, I don't, I don't take as good care of it as I should, but you can go to Amy C. Edmondson. Um, I think it's .com and, and find out my books and articles and, and all the rest. Perfect. We'll put links to that in the right. show notes and on YouTube. And Amy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Well, hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Edmondson. What a treat to be able to sit down with her and just pick her brain on failure, something that is part of the human condition, something that we all do, and something that certainly is part of trying to live a life to win and not just not to fail, which we talked about. I think that's a hallmark of someone trying to live an intentional life, trying to reach their God-given potential. And that's my heart here on the Intentional Leader Podcast is to try to help you gain clarity, courage, community, and consistency with each episode that we have. If you enjoyed this episode, would you mind sharing it with a friend? Help us grow our audience of leaders who are trying to reach their God-given potential. Remember that life is short. Let's go make it count.